From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Damon Wayans is a film and TV writer, director, producer, actor. He has credits such as The Last Boy Scout, Mo Money, Blank Man, and Spike Lee's Bamboozled. He starred in the TV series Lethal Weapon. And he wrote, directed, produced, and starred in the film Behind the Smile. His breakout moment came on the show In Living Color, though, which ran for four years in the early 1990s, the first black sketch comedy show on network television. And he's created four comedy specials for HBO. We're going to talk with him in the second part of this episode. But first, we're going to explore what we're learning about the inclusion of arts programming in education, including stand-up comedy. What do the things we find funny tell us about ourselves? What educational opportunities can we find in comedy? And how can we be open to potentially problematic content without shutting down dialogue or getting into what's widely being called cancel culture? Here to guide us on this exploration is Dr. James DeVita. He's the director of High Impact Pathways at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, where he is also an associate professor of educational leadership. And he teaches at a local dance studio where he also performs. He joins me now. Professor DeVita, welcome to Coastline. Thank you. He is performing in a dance performance with Forward Motion Dance Company at Thalian Hall on September 22nd and 23rd. Professor DeVita, your primary responsibilities relate to teaching educators or administrators in higher educational settings. So how do the arts come into play for you? Yeah, it's a great question, Rachel. Uh, I've been a dancer my whole life since I was three years old. Um, got put into it because of issues with my my feet and legs. And for a long time, kind of finding that intersection between the arts and what I do inside the classroom was a challenge for me. And it's not something we typically value or that you're typically taught to bring into the to an academic or to an educational space and, and to bring the arts in. Um, when I got to UNCW, we have such an incredible arts community in, in Wilmington, and it was kind of hard to avoid, you know, bringing in some of these topics and really getting a chance to engage in the work that's happening in the community and, and bringing it to campus. And so I teach a lot of classes on social justice topics in education, diversity, how we kind of make our students more culturally aware and more um, self-aware of, of issues that are present in society and how to address them in the classroom and in their roles as administrators. And so for me, I've been able to use the arts as a way to push students outside of their comfort zone, to get them to sort of think about uh, experiences from a different perspective and really think about the ways in which that arts represent all types of different aspects of our culture and, and our society. And so use it as a tool for reflection and critical reflection with my students. Use it as a way to push them outside of their comfort zone and get to think about things just a little bit differently than maybe they had before. You actually use dance in your in your teaching. I do. I have used dance. And, you know, you, you, if you want to see students get really uncomfortable, tell them we're going to do a, a dance exercise or even just a movement workshop. And you sort of see the eyes get really big. You see some anxiety start, you know, start to happen from a lot of students um, kind of in the classroom. They're not really sure what to expect. It's something 
totally different typically than what most students have been exposed to. Um, but there's a real embodiment that comes with having to move and having to sort of feel your body, you know, moving around in, in different ways than you've been asked to do before. I would also think some self-consciousness come. Like my first thought is, oh, are we in a black unitard? What's happening? <laughs> and I mean, does that come up? Like, do you have to address body issues when you do movement and dance? Yeah, typically less with, you know, I don't I don't make them get costumed up for class or anything like that. Um, but I, I will have students who, you know, will talk about sort of how uncomfortable they are with their bodies or um, even students who will sometimes disclose different, abili- disclose different abilities and, or limitations in their abilities. Um, And so we have a conversation about that and what that looks like kind of at the intersection of movement and how you can still engage in movement and in dance without necessarily um, having to really uh, adapt kind of what it is you you do, right? So it doesn't just mean, you know, doing a a giant leap or a turn or sort of things that are going to move you across the stage, right? We can do movements in smaller sort of more localized ways that are comfortable with our body. We all move every day, right? In in all types of different ways. And how do we sort of tap into that, that that we already are kind of known to be doing and to be comfortable with? And so it's not only uh, teaching in a different modality, but the students are also kind of processing the information in it different way. Yeah, I mean, that's what's so great, I think, about the arts is you can use it in so many different ways inside of the classroom. And so it's something that I've used um, to, again, sort of uh, provoke students um, thinking about a particular topic. I've used it as a reflection tool in different ways. Um, I'm actually teaching a class right now on social justice and diversity topics. And students just the other day had an assignment due where they had to identify a song of choice that represented kind of what it what it means to respond to that particular reflection prompt and then to bring the lyrics in and to think critically about then what those lyrics really mean um, to them and to their values and what they want to represent in response to that reflection. So I think there's so many different ways that the arts can actually get utilized inside the classroom. And UNCW is, of course, uh, bringing in all kinds of, of acts, to Keenan Auditorium and other spaces on on campus that are open to the public, the public can buy tickets, but but those events are still also often open to students. So what happens when an artist comes in who might not be someone uh, embraced by people studying social justice issues or who has what some might consider offensive content. How can you use that as a learning opportunity without completely trashing the artist? Yeah, I mean, I think we oftentimes think about art as the sort of culmination of someone else's work, right? So the performance was the the dancer's performance, the um, performance by the comedian was what happened in that space, and that becomes the sort of end of that experience. What I think we get to do in education is make that the start of, an, of, of, a, of a conversation, the start of another experience that we can pick up inside of the classroom. And so much um, of what happens, particularly in a performance around like stand-up comedy, is tapping into stereotypes and um, ideas that we share culturally or concepts that we share culturally, but maybe we haven't necessarily really reflected on what those mean and what the intersections of that particular context, that particular point in time, 
um, kind of looks like when we're responding to um, any type of art but or, or performance. And so what, what we can do in education is really use those performances, those experiences as a place to open up conversation with our students and to really think about what are the ways in which uh, that particular performance, that particular work of art might have reinforced some of our t- stereotypes or be based off stereotypes? What are some of the ways in which we can then think about challenging stereotypes and our cultural assumptions from what we've just saw or what we've just participated in? You know, one of the examples that comes to mind is the character Apu um, in the in The Simpsons. And... Apu was voiced by a white guy and became sort of the focus for stand-up comedian Hari Kondabolu to talk about um, stereotypes about Asian people and the the harm there. So many, uh, well, I guess white people <laughs> are going, there are too many categories for me to keep up with. I'm I'm just getting... Um, shut down and shut down and shut down in terms of what I can laugh at and how I can laugh. And and I shouldn't limit that to white people because that that's uh, true across genres, across eth- ethnicities, ages, um, all, all kinds of categorization. So what would you say to people who are just thinking, I'm so tired of having to tread on eggshells because I might offend somebody? Yeah, it's a really fair question and something that happens, you're right, even within marginalized communities. Um, I identify as LGBTQ+, part of the LGBTQ plus community, and there's lots of issues related to trans identity and topics I'm not familiar with, I'm not comfortable with, and so try not to pretend to know kind of everything, even about a, a, a sub-community that, that I um, come from, do work with, and, and try to engage in regularly. And so when you're part of the majority population who maybe feels like I don't have access to any of those marginalized identities, I think it can be confusing and uh, maybe triggering in a, in, a, in a way for those individuals. I think, you know, the questions we should be asking ourselves at, at, when we respond in those ways to those experiences are, you know, am I really laughing at this particular community or individuals from that community? Or can I actually sort of use humor as a an initial response, but then start to really question and reflect on why that's actually funny and what that being funny means, not only to me and my identities, but to the other groups that I'm laughing about or hopefully laughing with. So uh, I'm going to use a specific example here. Damon Wayans, who we're talking to in the second part of this episode, had a, a kind of iconic character, Blaine Edwards, who was part of the whole Men on Film and Men on Football, Men on sketches on In Living Color, which was in the 90s. So much of this was groundbreaking. And some people might say that his portrayal of a very uh, flamboyantly femme gay man was offensive. But I think he said at one point that there were actually gay bars, gay clubs that would have viewing parties and they would watch those sketches and laugh and laugh and laugh and loved them. Does that character feel mocking to, to you? Is that a stereotype that's offensive or problematic? Yeah, no, what I, I, I think it 
actually does a really nice job of kind of mocking the ways in which we stereotype about gender identity and sexual orientation within our society, right? There's there's absolutely no reason why a gay man can't be a football player, right? And in fact, we see some really prominent examples that have come up recently. And so I, I think what the gay community gets to laugh at in a skit like that is the, ridic- the ridiculousness that the comedian is actually, and Damon Wayans is actually sort of challenging and pushing back on, which is the stereotypes that sort of exist around that intersection of gender identity and performance, sexual orientation, and then the, the context of sports. Um, I think there's that additional layer um, with Damon Wayans' work around bringing in the fact that it was is a black sketch show, right? And so we're also talking about, you know, sort of a racialized um, representation within the community as well. And so I, I think what we actually get to mock is the ridiculousness of some of the stereotypes that we have in place um, in society sort of around these aspects of identity rather than mocking individuals who maybe hold that identity themselves. Yeah. And so if we think about this in, in sort of a real world setting, instead of having this sort of tidal wave of reaction that results in the canceling, and I'm using air quotes for that, of people, you know, whether they're policymakers or or artists of one kind or another. What do you think is a more constructive way of talking about it and using it as a jumping off point for conversation instead of just trying to shut someone down? And then it becomes like whack-a-mole, and then nobody really understands why, what the issues are anyway, right? Right. And I mean, I think we're... We could probably cancel just about everybody who's right. given a performance at one point in time or another and has said something, you know, offensive or done something pr- offensive or had a representation that that came across as offensive. And so, again, I can kind of jump back and say this should really be a starting point for conversation, right? All art is, you know, developed within a particular context and at a particular time. And so there is this really interesting intersection of not only the identities I think being um, portrayed in the particular art, whether it's comedy or, or something else, but there's also a lot of cultural influence, right? That is playing into you know whatever we are consuming and then interpreting and responding to. And I, I think being aware of that interplay of the multiple dimensions of what it means to engage with art and not just think of it again as a particular artist said something offensive, we need to react in that way. That artist is in context with a larger society, right? And so you're saying he's he or she is part of us. It's part of us, right? And and it takes some level of understanding to even get the joke or be offended by the joke, which means there's probably something we can all connect to and relate to from that particular joke that has been told to us, right? So it's not like it exists in a in a in a vacuum and we don't know and understand sort of what is being um, discussed or shared. And so I, I think this is what I love about bringing the arts into education is, you know, how can we really complicate what we consume and what we produce around art and start to think of it less as this sort of one dimensional um, component of our society and really think about like how intersectional and how um, influenced it is by so many dis- different aspects of our culture. You told us a little bit, Professor James DeVita, in the beginning about getting into dance because you had some physical challenges when you were a toddler. 
Can you tell us a little more about how that came to be and how that influenced the trajectory of your life? Yeah, you know, it's, um, I think I started dance before I can even remember, you know, having having my first memory. And so um, I had problems developmentally, sort of Forrest Gump-like uh, with my feet and legs. And it was a form of physical therapy to be put in dance. And so for me, you know, that personal sort of part of the experience has really made me who I am today. You know, I think I would be a totally different person had I not gone through that struggle and, you know, then been able to utilize dance as a tool for helping me develop, quote unquote, normal um, physical, you know, capacity. It also really has taught me a lot about gender and and the ways in which um, gender identity sort of impacts development interactions. A lot of my initial developmental experiences were around women. And so for, for a long time in my life, I felt much more comfortable around women. And it wasn't until I started really utilizing some of the skill and aptitude that I developed in dance to actually then play sports that I started to almost have to sort of relearn how to interact with some of my peers and, and other individuals who are predominantly male because we, you know, segregate sports by gender typically. And so um, there's both this kind of like physical development component for me that has happened as a result of dance. There's this larger sort of understanding and having to critique my own sort of personal identity in relation to other groups that have that has come about of it has come out of it as well. And you've also written extensively about that. It's interesting how different you're saying the gender the gender differences, the dynamics in a group were between a group of women and a group of men. And you've talked with me about needing to learn to perform more traditionally male kinds of um, behaviors. Can you uh, give us some examples of, of what that means? And it's what an idea to perform gender. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I think you brought up the character from Damon Wayans, right? That um, the the effeminate, you know, gay male who's playing sports, right? And I, again, I think the ridiculousness of that skit is there's nothing that would preclude an individual who represented those identities and in those ways from participating in being successful in sports. But when we look at sort of what the cultural norms kind of look like in different spaces. Um, there are different expectations, even in uh, something like ballet, which we think about as sort of historically uh, maybe attracting gay men or more effeminate men. Um, it's actually a very gendered art form, right? So men have very specific um, parts of the performance that they perform. They typically partner the women. Um, there's a real kind of understanding of like what your role is based on your gender in relationship to the other individuals that you're performing with on the stage. In a sports context, uh, typically with all males, again, because we don't we don't mix, especially after a certain level or a certain age, kind of a topic of debate going on right now, I think, around society about what the, what that means and what that looks like in sports. You know, the cultural norms look very different, and uh, your in order to I think feel comfortable for me participating in that space, I wanted to look and perform more like my peers. And so trying to sort of figure out what that looked like in a way that was um, still true to my other aspects of my identity was something I was really consciously aware of growing up. And you had some adults who, who helped you with that 
and part of your, uh, I guess, discovery has been how important those adults were to you in terms of affirming who you are. Yeah, it's really important why I think we have some of these conversations in education, because educators um, can make a really big difference, whether that's a teacher inside of the classroom, a school counselor. I had a really affirming soccer coach um, uh, when I was in, in high school who was just really positive with me about um, my own performance of identity and sort of what it meant in that particular space. And sort of reflecting back on those experiences, you know, it really does reveal how meaningful those individuals were and how nice it was to have people who just accepted you for who you are and reaffirmed those aspects of identity. And when I think we, what, what I hope to do as part of my work as an educator is to be able to train administrators, teachers, others, to be able to understand you know, in individual differences and what that looks like and to be positive and affirming with those individuals because I myself have seen the real sort of positive benefits of um, those relationships. And it's something that isn't really widespread in schools right now. The LGBTQ plus community, uh, especially adolescents, are more at risk for all kinds of high-risk behaviors as well as self-harm, suicide, because there often are not adults around them to affirm them as they are. And it, was it unusual for LGBTQ plus kids to participate in sports? So it can be, you know, and I think the literature sort of shows um, within education that, you know, typically most are not coming out, especially in the larger team sports, right? I think because some of those pressures of the norms and, and what's expected, um, you know, the pervasiveness of masculinity and what can be called toxic masculinity, right, um, particularly within male sports and sports like football, um, where there's just this expectation of size, of performance, of aggressiveness that you're sort of bringing into that space. And so if you don't align with that, that can become a pretty marginalizing space for you. And just when we think of sports, we do think of a certain amount of aggression that's necessary. So to help me there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I, I um, Even though I have a background in dance, some of the time I spent in dance was in competitive dance. And so it um, created a certain drive and motivation to, you know, perform, exceed, and excel sort of in those spaces. And I think that carried over really nicely for me into a more artistic space like dance. Um, so rather than being maybe overly aggressive, Mine got ma manifested more as um, aggression towards a goal or, uh, you know, uh, aggression kind of against the other other team kind of rather than um, towards my teammates or in a traditional masculine way. Did you have trouble with your uh, teammates? I mean, you said that you had adults that were very affirming of you and supportive, but was that a struggle? Yeah, I wouldn't say it was a struggle. I mean, so, you know, I think what was really interesting is I, I grew up in not a not a very big town, so a somewhat small town. And so all of the guys who I played soccer with also knew I was a dancer, you know, and um, there were ways in which that benefited me. So those relationships with women actually were appealing to my male peers because I could introduce them to other women that I knew from dance. And so um, it was finding ways um, to kind of bring together those those two spaces, you know what I mean, where I sometimes kind of felt at the middle. Um, but again, that's why I think also I was so aware of gender performance and identity 
kind of across those two spaces because I wanted it to not be a problem with my male peers. The fact that I had a background in dance and maybe was more effeminate than they were because of all of those different reasons. And I, when we spoke earlier, uh, you talked about a student who went to the Tolerance Museum in the Netherlands and the two of you went, huh, is that really the goal? <laughs> what is our goal? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think our goal is really celebration and appreciation of all the differences of identities. You don't have to know everything about every group that you're working with, but you've got to have an openness, a willingness to learn, a willingness to listen, and then a willingness to be supportive and celebratory of, of other individuals and those who are different from you. Professor James DeVita of UNCW, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. You're listening to Coastline. We'll be back after this short break with Damon Way and stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Damon Wayans is a three-time Emmy nominee. He's a New York Times best-selling author. He's a film and TV writer, director, producer, and actor with such credits as The Last Boy Scout, Mo Money, Blank Man, and Spike Lee's Bamboozled. He starred in the TV series Lethal Weapon. He produced and starred in My Wife and Kids and wrote, directed, produced, and starred in the film Behind the Smile. His breakout moment came on the show In Living Color, which ran for four years in the early 1990s. It was the first black sketch comedy show on network television. And while he'd already enjoyed a season on Saturday Night Live... In Living Color gave Damon Wayans the chance to showcase not only his comedic performing chops, but also his ability to write sketches and create characters. Stand-up comedy, however, remains his favorite form. Even after four HBO specials under his belt, One Night Stand, The Last Stand, Still Standing, and Way Out, he still tours as a stand-up comic. And he's coming to UNCW's Keenan Auditorium on Friday, September 16th, 2022. He joins me now. Damon Wayans, welcome to Coastline. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. What a wonderful intro. <laughs> well, it's great to have you with us. Now, you told me stuff about me I didn't know. I never knew I, I, I said, wow, that's great. You have written and acted in movies. You've, you've done TV, groundbreaking TV with In Living Color, but you say stand-up is special to you. Why is that? Um, what I love about stand-up is you, you're, every night you got to prove yourself. You know, you, it, you can't cheat the process. When you go up on stage, you know instantly if you're funny or not. And um, it takes a lot of, I don't know, courage to come back the next night if you're not, <laughs> if you're not <laughs> <laughs> not funny especially when you reach a certain level of success you know it gets harder and harder to walk through those doors when, when you really know that you you don't have it but that's the fun of it and you get a chance to write produce direct and star in your own thing nobody can tell you what to say or do and you just you know you just walk in a tightrope and it's just the greatest feeling ever and as you say the the bigger you become, the more you have at stake. At least it, it must feel like the more you have to lose if you bomb. Does that still happen at your level? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because I, I'm constantly trying to, you know, reinvent or, you know, I get bored with my act. I've, you know, since the pandemic, I've gone through three iterations of an hour. And it's just like I got I, I throw them away and I come back. Well, what, what do I got to say now? Because it's over. You know, if you're doing COVID jokes right now, eh, I mean, people are done with it, even though it's still, <laughs> you know, out there. You, you, you got to, you know, move on and kind of catch up to where, what people are really going through and um, and what I'm going through. And stand up is hard. You know, some of the greats, you know, Jim Carrey, he don't want to go through that process. Eddie Murphy, he doesn't want to go through the process. He's there, you know, and he's they, they have incredible success in movies. Martin don't want to do it again because it's hard. You can't cheat the process. And it's, as you say, it's one of those those strange genres that it's usually topical, has to be topical. So the era is often identifiable when you're looking back at stand-up comedy, and a lot of older comedy doesn't age well. When when you look at your body of work, your four HBO specials, how do you think about it as times change? Um, I don't think about it. I mean, it's it you know it is what it is. It's like you just you do it and you move on, and that's the great thing. If I was still doing that material. You know, maybe I'd have a, you know, I'd, I'd question it, but, you know, it's, it, that's, that was the times. That's what we, we, you know, people laughed. You know, the thing is, people don't understand comedians don't go out to offend, they go out to get laughs. And then people, based on their beliefs, you know, are offended or not, you know, and you don't really control that. But in the moment, there's a difference between, um, you know, what happens in a room, you know what I mean? Sometimes you know, there's three places I don't think we should have cameras. One is a comedy club, the other one is church, and the other one is the war room, because it's for the people who are there. It's like when you someone film it and you could take it out of context, you know, that's when all the trouble starts. That's so interesting. So you're talking about that really special dynamic that happens between a live audience and a performer and the give and take, because it is a give and take. Yeah. And now we're um, taking what's given and using it as a weapon. And it's wrong. I just think it's like you just, you know, pay the money to go see the show and then you can, you'll probably enjoy it. It's like, that's the magic of theater is it's in the moment. And the first thing they tell you is turn your phones off. You can't record this. And you just you get caught up, and that's why you're not afraid to cry in the theater, because it's it's intimate. Same thing with stand-up. It's, it's intimate. You're not afraid to laugh at the things they tell you. You know, you shouldn't laugh at that. But it was so funny. Yeah, and and you've I heard an interview with you. It, you were it was a radio show in New York City, and you you said that. The audience's enjoyment is completely on you as the guy who writes it and performs all of it. And you say, well, you said a couple of interesting things about it. But you say if people groan, it's because essentially, and I'm paraphrasing, you didn't communicate well. In other words, you believe that if people really got what you're saying or trying to say, they wouldn't be offended. Right. Or the groan is, oh, it's like it's it's. There's a joke there. 
you provoked an emotion. But, you know, that right on the other side of the groan is a huge laugh. And you just got to, you have to find it, you know, or you have to get rid of that, that, that joke until you can find it. I have a bunch of uh, jokes that, get, you know, in my history of doing stand-up that got groans. And it's just like, oh, man, but I know there's a joke there. You know, and sometimes I'll just like put it on the back burner because I don't I don't know what it is. And so we hear about comics who work on on their their act and their material. And of course, every live audience is different. Each place you travel, you're going to get differences in audience reaction. So how much do you have to adjust to each different audience? I mean, once you find the joke and you've gotten past the groan to the laugh, does that happen in most shows, for instance? Once once you get past the groan, then you have a great joke. And it works, and it, it'll keep working. Because you've, 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 you've you know, it's kind of like when you, if you're a writer, and you write, you know, uh, a chapter, and you just go, there's something wrong, something's missing. And then you learn in, you know, down in chapter 24, that he's actually going to kill her. So you got to go back and you have to, you know, make the adjustments in order to earn that moment, that surprise moment where she's killed. Right. So it's the same thing with stand up. It's like, it's not just that joke. It's the whole hour that you're doing. It used to be an hour and a half. It's like, what is your, the story you're telling like sometimes you can use that where you got the groan and call it back. You know, that's what Dave Chappelle did in the special before the closer. We say, you know, and he kick her in the pussy. That was a call. I guarantee you the first night he did that joke, he got groaned. Mm-hmm. And then he said, I'm going to do it here and I'm going to do it here. And it got funnier and funnier. He actually, you know, that was the close. On, on his uh, special before the closer. And it's just like, okay, that's that's what I'm talking about. Like, once you really understand what you're doing up there and how you're communicating, you can, you know, you can make adjustments. It's not, it's not, it's not um, rocket science, but there is a science. Yeah, yeah. I, I think a lot of people don't realize how much discipline goes into this particular genre. They think funny guys get up on stage and, and make people laugh. And there's so much. To, but you have a bit in Still Standing, which was from the 90s, an HBO special, that absolutely resonates today. And, and I think uh, white people are talking more about elements of this. But you were talking about it decades ago, your bit about black reporters getting disaster assignments. <laughs> yeah. Uh, TV and TV news. <laughs> yeah. For those who haven't heard that, could could you just sort of unpack what that was for you and how how that emerged? Um just I don't I I can't really tell you the the what the inception of it was, but I just know that every time I turn on my TV and I'd see, you know, them talking about some sort of disaster or a shootout or something like that. You have a black reporter, and I just found that funny. And then it's like, okay, how um, how do I take that to the next level? The first one, I don't even remember what it was, but he's standing there in front of a, I don't know, a, a shootout or something. And then they had him in a um, 
in a flood and then he was in a hurricane. That, I think that was the big joke was him hanging onto a tree being blown down the street and um, trying to report. But it, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it was the physical, the act out that was really the big joke. Right. Yeah. Belly down on the stool on stage, arms and legs out. Yes, it was, it was a very <laughs> funny bit. So many of your characters from In Living Color are now etched in history as iconic Blaine Edwards in Men on Film, Men on Football, Handyman, especially Homie to Clown. And I think we we actually have a little clip of Homie in case people listening don't know who that is. So let's listen. Homie to Clown on In Living Color. I've heard you say that that character is actually the closest to you of all the characters that you've done. Why is that? Because I'm an angry clown, but I do it on my own terms. (laughs) 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 And I don't, you know, there's uh, the things that people want you to do because they think you're a comedian. You just go, you're insane. I'm not going to do that. But there are things that I will do that I that I think it's funny, but I have to have my dignity. You know what I mean? I just there's just certain movie roles that I've turned down that I I can't do that. I got, I got parents, I got brothers and sisters that'll watch it. And, you know, so um, yeah, I, I I love I love Homie for that reason. He's he's angry, and I get a chance to really tap into the anger in me, and it's funny. Usually, if you're angry, nobody they, people run. With this guy, people actually like the angrier homie is, the funnier he is. Yeah, yeah. And it it took almost two years for the network to agree to put in living color on the air. Do you do you have any idea what they were afraid of at, at the time? Well, one of the sketches we did was um, uh, what was it? Uh, Farrakhan. We did uh, the Wrath of Khan in the pilot. And I don't know if Men on Film was in the pilot too, but um, they were so scared. They didn't know how, because we did Homeboy Shopping Network, they weren't sure how black people would respond. 
you know, they because the Homeboy Shopping Network is us basically selling stolen goods um, out of the back of a truck. And then uh, they didn't know how the Muslims were going to react. They didn't know how the gay community was going to act. Barry Diller was, you know, is gay. And so he was getting a lot of pressure from, you know, the they call it the gay mafia. Um, and, you know, it's just it was a miracle that it got on. And that's why we had so much fun doing the show is because we never thought it was last you know you know it's gonna be canceled just let's just do that let's do handyman (laughs) (laughs) and handyman was another one um even an ironic name for the character this was a guy who's disabled and a superhero how how did that idea come about because this also has a personal connection for you yeah i was born with a club foot so you know i i remember my first year in uh junior high school they put me in the special ed class because of my shoe. And my mother had to come to school and go, no, he, this is not, that's not, he, there's nothing wrong with him. But for the first time, I was the smartest guy in the class. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, they were cheating off my paper, finally. But <laughs> I, I actually, I actually, had to like deal with the you know the jokes and the you know the teasing about because the shoe was pretty big it was obvious it had a brace that went up to the knee you know and i had to wear the orthopedic shoes and stuff so you know i always had an an affinity and affection for handicapped you know kids and they were they were my friends you know until i got around my normal friends then i would you know i would i wouldn't hang out with them as as tough but i i knew them because i was in class with them yeah you talk about um, not doing certain things because you deserve to preserve your own human dignity. Uh, how would you have handled Chris Rock's situation at the Oscars? I know you've been asked about this before, and I'm asking you about it here because you actually are prepared for something like this. Oh, I, if I, it was I would have, what's today? September, we've still been fighting. I would have climbed over the, the fence of his house. It just like this, it was national TV. It was, this is, you know, uh, uh, 80 million people watch me get slapped. I got to do something. I, that, I got, that's, you know, it, 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 it's the homie in me. I get, you're not going to make me look bad like this. Not not in front of my mama, not in front of, you know, the world. I can't, I can't. Even if I got beat up, we fighting and we going to keep fighting. And but, it, you know, Chris Rock is, is not, you know, 50 cent, 50 cent. He wouldn't have slapped 50 cent. He slapped 50 pounds. So. <laughs> <laughs> is it true that you have a baseball bat with you on stage just in case? Yes, ma'am. I have to, you know, it's just just. Just in case, because, you know, people want it now. It's become, you know, a, a, a thing you do It's like attack the comedian, you know, it's like with them attacking Dave Chappelle and, you know, and, you know, Cat Williams got slapped. And, you know, it's just like I, I'm not and I'm 62 years old. I'm not fighting nobody. But I'm going to have a mean 
That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we didn't play that. <laughs> now, you, of course, have an incredibly talented family, not just siblings, but also children. And your son, Damon Wayans Jr., is also an actor and, and comedian. And you gave him a great start, letting him open for you, but with a different name. Did did people ever figure it out that, oh, that's Damon Wayne's son? Or as soon as, he, as soon as he gets on stage, people were like, because he was going up as Kyle Green, you know, and, he, you know, people would yell, that's Damon's son. And throughout <laughs> this whole, like, five minutes, people are yelling, that's Damon. You Damon, tell the chief, he looked just like, and so he was just like, let me just own this and come out as Damon Wayne Jr. But I put him through the, through the paces, you know, because it, it, I, I did, it wasn't easy for him. Like going up on stage, like normally, you know, comedian, when you go to a comedy club, you have the MC who comes out, he warms up the crowd, then he brings out the next person, the middle, the feature, and then the headliner. And I would make little Damon go up as MC and middle. So you're going to go and get them from from the jump you got to go out there and and earn it and he was so frustrated he's like why can't the um the local djs you know bring nope you go out there and you talk to him you go you figure it out and he and he did and like i said it's just um you know there's no shortcuts you gotta you can't cheat the process and it would have been unfair of him to him to bring him up after you know the MC because he's gonna he's gonna get that you know that love that he doesn't really deserve. Yeah, and you, uh, so you, so you put him through his paces, and you've done that when you've mentored other comedians, but you nor you normally don't bring your own openers. Why is that? Um, one, I want people to I want to give people opportunities. Two, I don't like, um, uh, you know, so a lot of comedians will bring somebody with them because they want to ensure that they're not going to step on this joke or they're not going to, you know, that they're not going to upstage them. I want somebody with fire in their belly. And you only find that when you don't know. I'm surprised. I want to be surprised. I want to, I want somebody to, um, to challenge me. You know, so I, so I can tap into my A game. Um, but that's that. You know, that's just me. So, and and I I like seeing young comics hungry. Damon Wayans performs at UNCW's Keenan Auditorium on Friday, September sixteenth, twenty twenty two. Damon Wayans, you have said that we've we've become really sensitive. What do you, and and we're not laughing about things as much as we maybe could be or should be. What are some of the areas you think we should be able to poke fun at that, that are just sort of off limits now? Anything that people say and do that's stupid should be, you know, modern <laughs> for comedy because we, you know, if we, we're all acting like we're holier than thou and none of this, you know, None of this PC is working. I mean, you know, are we a kinder, gentler society because we don't say certain words? No. We got people shooting up 
you know, schools and, and malls and, you know, but, and then are we going to change what we call them? You know, we call those uh, uh, people who d don't adhere to vi uh, uh, firearm safety laws. No, they're shooters. They're murderers. That's what we call them. Let's stop. Let's stop delabeling and start trying to, if we laugh more, we won't be so angry. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Do you, does that mean that you avoid punching down? So you'll go after people who do no. stupid things, but you don't but, avoid punching down. It's not, I don't know what punching down is. You know, when we take the word out of music, you know, then we can have this conversation. You know, um, I, some of these words are, you know, are just, I grew up on them. And, you know, you take a word like faggot. We built the biggest, baddest military machine in the world using that word. And they would use it to break people down and then build them up and make them tough. Because guess what? If the Taliban takes you hostage, they're not going to ask you, what pronoun do you want to be? <laughs> what, what is your pronoun? Cut your head off. And that is this edition of Coastline. Damon Wayans, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks also to Professor James DeVita and UNCW's Chrissy Vick. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell, who also engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Tell us what you think about the episode on Facebook. Find us at WHQR's Coastline, hosted by yada yada, or just send an email to coastline at whqr.org. Find the episode wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline.